Hello everyone, this is Anurag Agrawal. And this is Vidhan Katani, bringing to you Climate Crew. A limited edition webinar where we interview experts from around the globe on the topic of environment conservation and its relation with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Today we have with us Dr. Ujjayan Chakravarti, who will be discussing goal number seven, clean and affordable energy. Professor Chakravarti is a professor of economics at Tufts University and a fellow at the Dalhousie School of Economics at CESI4. He is the co-editor of the Journal of Environment, Economics and Management. His current work involves estimating economic benefit of reliable electricity in rural India and the relationship between uh, deforestation and household time allocation. His research has been published in uh, various mainstream academic journals, including the American Economic Review, the Journal of Political Economy, and uh, Econometrica. He is the co-editor of the book, uh, India and Global Climate Change, published by Oxford University Press. Professor Chakravarti has a BS in civil engineering from IIT Delhi and a PhD in resource and environmental economics from the University of Hawaii. Welcome to the interview. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Arnav and Vedant. That is awesome. So to start us off, uh, Professor Chakravarti, one of the primary targets, I would say, of SDG 7 is to ensure universal access to affordable, reliable and modern energy services. This will, of course, require this shift from fossil fuels that are unsustainable and you know harmful to the environment to renewable energy. Now, despite the fact that clean energy is becoming cheaper, more efficient and more reliable each day, a lot of countries are still struggling to cope with the change. Now, why do you think this is happening and what can be done to bring about the change as quickly as possible? Um, that's a really good question and one of the areas in which I work. So there are many reasons why. One is, you know, it is true that renewables are slowly becoming cheaper. I had done some research back in 1997, uh, more than 20 years ago, which showed that solar energy prices were coming down, especially photovoltaic cells. And they have indeed come down, if you look at that prediction over the last 20 years. But um, there, there is some concern that they are not yet cheaper than fossil fuel sources. For example, if you think about solar use in um, electricity production, which is where the uh, most of solar is used, either rooftop solar or um, you know commercial solar, which then allows you to use electricity for residential use, commercial use. Um, that is one issue, that there is some path dependency. The second one is, yes, in areas where renewables are um, cheap cost, you can use them, but they are not there everywhere. For example, wind blows at night when you don't use a lot of energy. You use energy primarily in the morning and in the evening time when people go back from office and cook at home. So the night, the you know, blowing of the wind is not very useful because that energy is very cheap, but maybe you can use it to charge your solar car, but I cannot use it for cooking. And the storage of these energies is still expensive. So one of the big um, impediments to popularization or increased market share of uh, renewables is um, storage, the cost of so storage. So these are, I think, two main reasons why you don't see uh, much more renewables. The third is more political, that many governments 
are still subsidizing fossil fuel extraction. For example, if you look at the United States, onshore, offshore oil production is still subsidized to the tune of billions of dollars by the government. So oil companies are, um, you know, are still making profits. Um, although, to be honest with you, there have been some trends. For example, in many campuses in the U.S., they have tried to uh, motivate their you know, university administrations to take out their funds, investment funds, from you know, energy companies, fossil fuel companies. So those types of things have happened. On Wall Street, there are you know, uh, investment funds that are basically, um, they only invest in sustainable you know, uh, resources and so forth. Um, those are gaining ground. But if you, again, if you look at the aggregate share, it's not really big. It's maybe, you know, two or 3%. But of course, if you think of hydro as a renewable, then the total amount of energy use is much larger. Okay, so um, as Yadav mentioned, uh, one of the important targets of uh, the Sustainable Development Goal is to provide access to affordable energy. However, I was looking at your, uh, I was looking at one of your research papers on the quality of electricity. Uh, from the abstract, I guess that higher quality electricity would increase incomes of people in rural places. What do we mean by uh, quality of electricity, and uh, should we have uh, that as a clause in, say, a Sustainable Development Goal? And uh, if yes, then how can we achieve uh, good quality or high quality electricity? So in the case of electricity, the definition of quality is very simple, that you want assured electricity supplies when you need them. You know, I grew up in India and I know that, um, you know, there were a lot of brownouts. Even now in certain parts of the country, you don't get electricity. Sometimes it comes maybe once every four or five days, uh, especially in rural areas. So if I'm a farmer who uses electricity to drive my irrigation pumps for crop production, I'm not able to use electricity, then I have to go to diesel or some other substitute. Um, so this is a big problem, uh, you know, providing reliable electricity. So it's not just enough for the government or for companies to come and connect you to the grid because that grid may not give you assured electricity when you need it. So that is important, right? So. Again, I don't think that just mandating quality is going to be enough. You have to provide incentives to producers to give you that electricity supply that is reliable, number one. Number two, the reason uh, the quality is low is basically a gap between supply and demand. There is too much demand of electricity, especially in countries like India. So many more people are taking out electricity from the grid and not enough electrons are being supplied to the grid. So that means that there are, you know, there's a blackout essentially because there is excess demand. Uh, so it doesn't happen in places like the United States because we have a convergence of supply and demand. So I think, you know, it needs, you need more uh, provision of supply. What does that mean? That means you need more incentives to the private sector to come and uh, produce more electricity. But again, like you said in your earlier question, uh, you know, we don't want too much fossil fuel electricity. We would like wind electricity. We would like more solar um, produced electricity. So that will um, definitely partly solve the problem. If I had a, you know, rooftop solar in my village in say Haryana, and then I can maybe not depend on the grid electricity, but 
supplemented with what I have from renewable sources. So you need to think about this both from the point of view of providing more renewable sources as well beyond the existing fossil fuel supply. Actually, it's a really good point, sir. But I feel um, the dilemma that the world faces today um, is that to support clean energy, but what cost? I mean, when I say cost, if you look at it uh, in an environmental perspective, a lot of times uh, there are cases where the infrastructure that is needed uh, to obtain energy is the one that ends up costing lives of various species in the region. Now, I've heard examples of birds getting killed by the fans of windmills or, you know, construction of dams resulting in submerged villages and at times even entire ecosystems are vanished. Now, how would you address this issue, this trade-off that comes with the implementation of renewable energy? So, you know, again, you know, I keep telling my students, look, there is no free lunch in, you know, as we know, in economics. So, yeah, if you want more hydropower, um, people are going to be displaced, right? So if you want more, you know, standard sources of electricity, there is more air pollution from coal-fired power plants, which is very, very serious. Now, one thing is we need more research to find out which of these uh, impacts are really much more damaging. So we need to do valuation of these impacts because there is no way of getting around and saying, we want more energy for our iPhones and iPads and so forth, but there's no cost to the economy. There is absolutely a major cost to the economy. The question is, how do you minimize those costs? So you choose sources of electricity or uh, energy production or anything else that minimizes these environmental costs. I don't think there's a way to get away from them. A good example is New Zealand. I mean, New Zealand is a country which has a lot of hydro, but you also know New Zealand because it's so uh, high air quality country, a lot of tourism, pristine mountains and so forth. And, you know, this is a big dilemma in New Zealand. They would like to increase electric, uh, electricity production because their population is growing. But on the other hand, they do not want to build more dams because of exactly the problems you talk about, the ecological impacts of dams. So this is a trade-off. How does New Zealand go about providing more sustainable energy? This is a huge dilemma and there are no easy solutions. You need more information on the impacts and then try to make sure not, not only that the impacts are minimized, but also that the impacts don't fall adversely on the poorer sections of society. So, so uh, speaking more to that in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, minimizing the cost of electricity uh, is a really important part of the sustainable uh, sustainability agenda. And uh, speaking to that, it is something that requires a global uh, co a cooperation in the sense that, uh, say, a single country such as New Zealand, uh, while it is looking at uh, minimizing its dams and uh, minimizing uh, hydroelectric power and looking at other sources of energy, uh, research and development is a global process. But then at the same time, uh, especially in this day and age, and say the president of the United States is openly supporting protectionism and individualism, we see that there is a lot of uh, economic and uh, therefore uh, social and political uh, tension amongst uh, countries. This almost sort of lack of a better word, selfish uh, behavior is also affecting the global climate crisis. A major part of this crisis is that uh, countries aren't willing to accept their clean energy goals. And uh, do you think that there is a disparity in the pollution that different countries are committing? And how does this disparity inform us about uh, global energy policy? 
Yes, this is a very important question, especially, you know, given the what has happened in the with the Paris Accords, for example, the U.S. pulling out and so forth and global, you know, trade uh, conflicts. And so it's a it's an important problem because, uh, you know, how can you obviously, you know, countries have to cooperate. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. We talk about uh, uh, green paradox, essentially uh, in economics. You know, we basically say that, look, if everyone is doing um, sort of, so let's say the European countries are like Germany are heavily into renewables. Then what that that does is that it reduces the you know supply of or, uh, I'm sorry, it reduces the demand for fossil fuel based energy. So prices of fossil fuels fall. So other countries have an incentive to increase production. For example, China may then have an incentive to increase its use of oil in its uh, energy sector. Uh, you know, in terms of production of oil. So there is a perverse effect in the sense that if some countries are participating in limiting their um, fossil fuel use, other countries have a perverse incentive to increase it uh, from the purely from the point of view of costs. Now, this is a very important issue, and this can only be solved if countries can come together like and agree like they did in Kyoto in 1997, like they did in Paris so that we recognize that some countries will be adversely impacted and more adversely impacted than other countries. For example, small islands in the Pacific might go underwater with climate change. So we need to recognize the fact that there is asymmetry in this relationship, but everyone has to be together. Otherwise, the market doesn't work. The agreement doesn't work. That is a very important um, you know, issue that we need to think about. The second point you raised is how does you know, how do we attribute the, um, the environmental costs to different countries? And this is a really important issue. For example, China is now the world's supplier of many products. You know, think about toys or rubber or all kinds of products come from China. Obviously, that's why China's environmental pollution is very high in terms of carbon emissions and so forth. And um, we know as a, as a consumer in the U.S., I'm not buying U.S. products. I'm buying Chinese products. So technically, Chinese economy is producing products for the whole world. So they are also, therefore, their pollution is very high. So I think everyone has a responsibility, including the people who are consuming those products. It's not, not just China that is producing those toys. It's me as a consumer of those toys that I have a responsibility if the production of those toys is creating environmental pollution. So to that extent, yes, trade has an important effect on um, on uh, pollution itself now if trade if the reduction of trade that you have seen uh, recently uh, more protectionism uh, you know leads to more production in-house they i'm not sure what the consequences for the environment might be because you could for example think that countries will do less trading therefore they will produce more um, you know goods in-house maybe in, with less a profitable means and therefore you know they may be less efficient in which case the environmental impacts may be actually even larger uh, so, so uh, just an inference from this uh, is that uh, like you said uh, there's a this sort of paradox there where uh, there's a supply and demand uh, pull and push relationship where if one country stops demanding the price automatically drops and that's the way a free market works right so uh, 
we there's this kind of uh, direction for us to collectively all countries to collectively move away from uh, production of oil and uh, if we look at countries that are generally rich in oil if you look at so essentially we are looking at uh, somewhere in the middle east right because uh, that's the sort of gulf area is the sort of uh, you know key producer of oil a lot of those countries have already diversified in, uh, their kind of economies and uh, still a large part of Uh, their income comes from oil. So, how can we look at this in terms of, uh, you know, for example, say a person sitting in the U.S. Uh, uses say ten times uh, more electricity. I'm I'm not quoting figures. Yeah, I'm saying I'm just giving an example. A uh, person sitting in say the U.S. is uh, using the ten percent more ten times more electricity than say some uh, villager in India or uh, some villager in Africa. And uh, we look at the kind of disparity there, and how can we account for that? Yes, this is a very important argument that the fact that the developed countries have already developed in an era when there was no restriction on energy consumption, right? So um, that is uh, one issue that needs to be—it's an imbalance that needs to be fixed because, uh, like you said, a poor person in India uses very little energy. The second thing is, um, you know, uh, against that is the fact that now these new economies that are developing. Have access to better technology. So the industrial revolution in England and uh, later on in the United States was done in an era when energy was cheap and everyone used unlimited amounts of energy. But now, you know, for example, a farmer in Punjab can use modern irrigation technologies, which are much more efficient and can carry that water to the to the plant, you know, in in his farm. So basically, uh, they there is um, you know they are benefiting from the in increase in technology sophistication, better technologies being available. That is one good thing. So it's a it's a difficult situation. However, economists have basically talked about a carbon tax. So if there is a imagine a global market, and the uh, Paris Accords tried to get at that, the Kyoto even more, but you know it's very difficult to bring every country. Um, to the table and agree, but if there's a one price of carbon in the whole world that says, you know, it's thirty dollars a ton of CO2, then every country in the world can react to that. Meaning, you know, they can they can look at the price of carbon and decide if they want to produce, you know, their commodities in house or produce it somewhere else. Plus, that price can also lead to a lot of investment. So, for instance, you know. Uh, an investor in the U.S. can go to Bangladesh and say, you know, Bangladesh has a very dirty, let's assume, uh, old, you know, energy sector. It has very old power plants which are highly inefficient. Let me invest in a brand new power plant, and then I'm going to save so many tons of carbon. And that saving of carbon basically means dollars, so that I can benefit from, you know, the, having this new plant that is much more efficient because those tons of CO2 can be sold. In a global market, you know, in a global market where people buy and sell pollution permits. So when I teach my in my class, I talk about the importance of things like permit trading and or carbon taxes that will help balance this current uh, situation where the the carbon is not priced and therefore it is not included in your benefit cost and calculations and in your investment decisions. Uh, something like a global cap, uh, cap and trade system. Uh, exactly. 
I mean, we do have in the United States, we had a very successful uh, program, uh, so think... trade program in sulfur permits for many years, a couple of decades, and it was amazingly successful. And um, but however, for various political reasons, plus the fact that the program was so successful that it achieved large reductions in sulfur emissions, uh, that program is no longer operating. But we had a very good uh, case study that can be easily uh, replicated internationally. Oh, I think um, uh, we've reached the end of it. I mean, it was amazing listening to you, all your research work. That's what we're looking for. And, you know, it's been an amazing session with you, uh, Professor Chakravarti. And we hope to have such good interviews in the future uh, with other interviewees and we'll be discussing other sustainable development goals in the upcoming webinars. We thank you for your time and for everything we've learned from you. So thank you so much.